Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we are going to finish up chapter 2 this morning as we, our text this morning is verses 17 to 20. First Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Paul writes, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we go through our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that illuminates it for us so that we might understand it. We thank you that it is written in human language. We thank you that it has been given to us in our language so that we can read it and understand it and to know who the true God is and what he expects from us and the worship that we must give. And so this morning, again, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truths of your word of God, of the word of God to us here this morning, and that you would use your word as you see fit in our hearts. And we do pray that there would be conviction, that there would be breaking down and building up, and that we would go forth encouraged and again in joy because we have heard from our God here this morning through your word. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. God, by his very nature, is social. God, by his very nature, is social. God has existed eternally as three persons, one God. And in that trinity, those three persons that are God, in that mystery, we should say, of three three persons and one God, there has always been perfect fellowship. God has enjoyed perfect fellowship. In fact, he said when he made man, he didn't need anything from man. He didn't need anything from from him. He didn't need worship. He didn't need anything because God was completely content in himself. And again, he dwells in plurality because he is by nature someone who is social. There's diversity and there is socialization. And so when God created man, he created man in his image. He said, let us make man like us, right? In other words, there's a plurality and man was created himself to be in socialization. He was meant to have fellowship with other people. In fact, when it was found that Adam was alone, God said, it is not good for a man to be alone, right? And he created Eve for number one purpose was what? Companionship, to fill that void. And it was to be from that 
relationship, that primary relationship that would come children that would start to make the family unit that ultimately would start to build society. And so for all society, really for the last six to seven thousand years after God created the world, man has existed relatively in the same manner from beginning to end. With the technology didn't change. He was limited in his ability to travel. He was limited in his entertainment. He had to work hard to survive. The little time that he did have would be spent with family and with close friends. There was no television. There was no radio. Close your ears, teenagers. There was no phones. There was no internet. And so you were forced, if you were going to actually have a socialization, you couldn't get on your, your uh, device and call someone. You couldn't, you couldn't contact somebody from across the world. You either had to send a letter or you got on a horse or a boat and you went to see them. And so your evenings weren't spent around the television. Uh, I'm not sure if the teenagers know what that is either. But, or the internet or their phone, they actually, you actually had to spend time with people. But the Industrial Revolution came and, and technology started to take off. And we were first kind of introduced to that little thing called the phone and then the radio. And so we would, we would at least be together around the, the radio as we listened to programs. But soon television came and then the internet and the computer and the smartphone. And now we communicate not by being together, but by texting each other, even if we're in the next room. And we have slowly but surely of a society become become comfortable with being alone. In fact, being alone is preferred because people are messy. And people are difficult. And it's harder to say things that you're thinking when you're staring someone in the face. And sadly, society has become so segmented that they are more comfortable alone than they are with other people. And the very people that God created to be together now want to be separated. So it should be no surprise when the pandemic hits the society is actually very, very, very comfortable with being segregated and alone. After all, it's better to be safe than to be with someone else. And it doesn't even have anything to do with COVID-19. It has to do with the fact that people are messy. And one of the things that should alarm us was just how easily it was to separate people and how easy it was for them to be alone. Well, sadly, it wasn't just society that thought that. It wasn't just secular society who was comfortable to be alone. It was the church. It had so infiltrated the culture of the church that now the church thought it was okay not to meet. It was okay to be separated. After all, it's better to be safe, right? After all, we can get together on social media, we can, we can Skype, we can Zoom, we can call one another. 
that's good enough. And the church seems to have forgotten that man was by his very nature was created to be social and to be together and that he was placed in a family to be socialized and that those families are the building blocks of society but they're also the building blocks of the church. And the church is not just called a body, it's called a family and it was meant to be together. And so the church was very quick to throw away its understanding of the necessity of the personal presence of fellowship together. They were quick to dismiss the necessity of it because after all, this was easier. And yet the Bible doesn't know anything about a church meeting online. It doesn't know anything about a church that is meeting virtually. Everything about the church and all of the, the, the metaphors used to express who the church is necessitate the personal presence of believers together. And Paul is, is about to, to give us a, a picture of that in this passage here this morning. And he is going to give us a picture of why it is necessary to be together, not online, but personally, in person, together. Now, Paul is going to defend, he's defending in one sense, an accusation against him that says, you left us and you don't care. And Paul is going to say, actually, I really do care. And to be personally present with you is preferred because this is the way it should be. And in doing so, Paul is going to give us three characteristics that should be possessed by each one of us. Three characteristics that should be possessed by each one of us. He says, first of all, we should miss Christian fellowship. When you don't have it, you should cry like a baby without milk. He says, number two, we should seek personal presence. In other words, we should seek to get it. We should go after it, not just wish for it, but we should go after it. And thirdly, we should have an eternal perspective on personal gathering or personal presence. In other words, there's an eternal value to it that should spur us to come together. And so this morning we start with we should miss Christian fellowship. Paul says you should miss it. It shouldn't be something that disappears and you're, you go on with life as if nothing ever happened, as, as if everything is going on as usual. And so Paul starts in verse 17. But we, brethren. But we, brethren. Now again, he uses this term brethren, and it is often used as, as a transition in Scripture. We saw that back in verse 1 of chapter 2, where Paul is transitioning from his thanksgiving for what God has done in their lives to his defense of his ministry, and he says, you know brethren, you yourselves know brethren. He does it again in 
chapter 4, verse 1, where he again changes. Finally, brethren, we request these changing topics. Chapter 5, he goes, Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren. So again, he is switching topics. And it's also a call to attention, but there's more to this term brethren than just getting their attention. Paul, remember, has used this term in the, in the last time that we saw it here as drawing them in as spiritually. They were, in other words, they were in the spiritual family together. And he says, we are, you are spiritually in the same family of me, and therefore I am now expressing an, an affection for you. He says, I have an affection for you because you are in the body of Christ. You are in the family of Christ. And he now says, I I have, an, I have an affection for you. And it's like he's preparing his, leader, his readers for the outpouring of affection that he is about to pour out upon them. And so Paul writes, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Now he starts out with this contrast here, with, and, and he uses this little word, but, this adversive word, but. And he's making a contrast here. And Paul says, in contrast to those people that we looked at in the last passage, to the Jews who were persecuting the church, those who were so hostile to the gospel that they didn't even want others to hear the gospel, they couldn't even stand that Gentiles got saved, and they were hostile, he said, to all men because they refused to let the gospel be heard. And he says, in, in contrast to them, in contrast to who they are, he says, but we. In opposition to all of those men, those hostile men, we. And he begins a defense here of his own ministry, his own spirit that as he dealt with the Thessalonians his own attitude towards them. And so he, 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 in essence, is resuming the defense that he had in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, where he was defending his ministry and saying, actually, we didn't come there to take advantage of you. We didn't come with wrong motives. And he had to defend himself against accusations about his motives for ministry among them. He said, we had to prove what we, we proved what kind of men we were among you. You know who we were. But now he puts on a new defense, and, and his defense isn't about, about his motives, but about his devotion to them, about his devotion. While apart, he explains his heart while he is separated from the believers. In other words, they're accusing Paul of leaving the Thessalonians and not caring. You're just gone. Things got tough in Thessalonica, and off you went. And Paul says, no, here's my defense. This is what Paul is thinking, the heart of what he did when in his departure from them. Now, it wasn't a planned departure. It's not like Paul wanted to leave. It's not like Paul had already had a bus schedule and was, had it set on the, on the calendar. And that's why he says in this little phrase here, if we look at our Bibles, he says this, 
having been taken away from you, having been taken away from you. Now our English translation, I don't think captures everything that is there in that original word. And, and so we, we don't maybe catch the fullness of here, but you could translate this literally, made an orphan of. To make an orphan of. Paul is essentially saying this, we brethren, having been orphaned from you, it, it, it's a strong word, it's a striking word when you, when you listen to it. It's not, he says, we, we've been orphaned from you. The, 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 and you, you, you automatically, as you hear that word, it tugs on your heart, doesn't it? You think of orphaned, someone who's been orphaned, and, and immediately you have that, that sympathy and feeling drawn out in your heart. And you feel that loss and bereavement. And Paul says, we've been, we've been literally ripped apart from you. We've been torn apart as an orphan is torn away from his parents. Paul's already referred to himself and his fellow missionaries as infants. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 7. He referred to them as mothers back in verse 7 as well. And then he, then he talked about them being like fathers to them who cared for them. And now he says, when we came to you, when, when we came to you as a missionary team, when I came with Silas and Timothy... We left as orphans. We were forcibly removed from you. You were, you were ripped from our arms. Now I want you to notice something here. And I, and I think it's significant and I think it's true. Paul says, he doesn't say, you were orphaned from us. You see that? He doesn't, you look at his Bible, I mean at your Bible, he says, having been taken away from what? You. He doesn't say you were orphaned from us. He says we were taken from you. And notice this, Paul is expressing the idea that he is, in the, he is the one who is in need. He is the one who has been orphaned. He is the one who is feeling the pain. He's expressing his own grief and his own anguish over what is taking place. He says, I am feeling the pain because we have been removed from your presence. Paul is the one who's orphaned. And he says, I feel like someone who's been orphaned, who's been ripped away from their parents. That's how strong I feel about being apart from you. Hebert in his commentary makes this quote. He says, he says, not parted from you or torn from you or distance or absent, but orphaned from you. He sought for a word that might fitly indicate his mental anguish, though standing in relation of a father to them all, he utters the language of orphaned children that have prematurely lost their parents. And he says, I feel orphaned from you.
And Paul takes this metaphor, as it were, and, and he twists it. The expectation is that the Thessalonians should be orphaned, but Paul ex- changes it and extracts it so that he might get the most emotion out of it. And Paul says, I was orphaned. I was orphaned from you. And again, we saw that back in Acts chapter 17. We read how Paul was there as he ministered in Thessalonica. He was three, we know for three Sundays or three Sabbaths, he went to the synagogue. He was probably there for a longer period of time than is recorded here. But it wasn't long before the Jews got jealous and a mob came to get Paul and his missionary friends and they ended up going to Jason's house, the, per, the man who had hosted them. And Jason was forced to pay a bond so Paul and Silvanus and Timothy could leave. And so they, we, we know in verse 10 that they had to leave in the middle of the night. Right? We, they, they are now traveling on paths that you normally only would travel during the day, but it was so dangerous for them that the dangers of traveling of night were less than staying in Thessalonica. And so they left for Berea. You know, you notice this little thing for a short while. We were apart from you for a short while. And, and the idea is we, we were there for one hour or a season of one hour. And it, what he's getting at, it, it was a brief period of time that we've been separated and already we're feeling this. We're already fe- overcome with bereavement for missing you. And, and there's a sense in which the length of separation intensifies the pain. The missionaries were unable to be away from them for a single hour without a deep sense of loss. And it proved their affection for their converts. And so Paul says, this is, this is how we felt. This is where we were at. We were taken away from you. And even though it's only been a short period of time. It didn't take long for us to start to miss you. But he says, in person, not in spirit. He says, we only left you in person. We were forced to go. Now it's interesting. The reference here is, he said, we, we, we left you literally, the idea is in face, not in heart. He was orphaned in reference to the face. It's interesting. He says, we were orphaned to you, from you from face, not from heart. Now we know what the heart is. The heart is the center of and the seed of human emotions and thought. And Paul says, you're still there. You're still in our hearts. We, we still remember you. We still have affection for you. We weren't, our, we, but we weren't our orphaned in heart. We were orphaned in relationship to your face. Isn't that interesting? We were orphaned in relationship to your face. Now the face is what pictures physical presence. It is one thing that most vividly demonstrates a person's presence. And so he said, listen, we were 
we were kept away from you. In other words, face-to-face fellowship. Then we look at the phrase at the end of verse 17. And he says this, We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. With great desire to see your what? Your face. And here in, in, in this sentence is, is what we would call emotional language. It is some of the most emotional language and affectionate language that Paul uses. And, and he, is, he is emotional. He says, I mean, he even throws what we would say the word order out of, out of order again here like he did earlier to, for emphasis. And we could literally translate this. Excessively, we endeavored your faces to see with great longing. And there's this repetition of ideas here where we're the, and a passionate redundancy of words as he speaks about how excessively and how he endeavored with great longing to see them. And he wanted to see what their face. And so Paul is, Paul is again, is just emotional here. And we know, all know what we do when we get emotional. When we start to speak and we start to speak with passion, we start to add adjectives and we start to add superlatives to our language because we want to make sure that you're getting the point, right? It's not just that I'm in pain. It was great, excruciating pain, right? And so we, we, we get emotional, we get excited. And that's what Paul is doing here because Paul desires to be with and see the Thessalonians. He endeavors to see their faces with great longing, excessively eager we endeavored. But this word here, to be desired, it's more than when he endeavored, not just to desire, but actual effort to realize that desire. Paul is not just wishfully thinking about seeing their faces again. The idea here is that he made concrete efforts to go and see them. In other words, Paul didn't just sit there and hope it would happen. He begins to what? To make an effort to go see them. And you can almost see that Paul is saying, man, you don't know how many times I packed my bags and was ready to come to you. You don't know how many times that I wanted to come and I got all packed up and something came up and I couldn't go. And I couldn't go. And he says, I, I did this many times. We w- I wanted to see you, but something came up. And I can't help but think that we have senior saints in, in our midst here today and who are not here today who experience this very often, who desire to be here, who get ready to come and then their health won't allow them. And how they desire and must feel like the Apostle Paul here, wanting, desiring to be with the fellowship, but unable to come. And we as a congregation must recognize this. We must understand this, that they desire to be here, but are unable to. He says, with great desire, again, emphasizing much longing and intensified passion. This word here for, 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 for great desire is, is the word that we often use for lust in a negative sense. But it can also be used in a positive sense. And he says, there is great desire here. 
There's a, a virtuous passion to be together. And then, and that is what Paul does again in, to explain and describe the intensity of his desire to be with them. And notice this last phrase, to see your face. To see your face. In re- reality, this is the main idea of this section. Paul's desire, all of his longings, was to see their faces. He uses it in various ways. He talks about coming to you, but he wants to see them. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, along, he says about longing to see their faces. The face that is the representation of presence. And he says, I want to see not just any face. Not just any face. I actually want to see your face. Your face. It's a specific identity, a specific group of people, a specific individuals. And we know this that your face is personal. It's personal to you. It's unique to you. And it represents your presence, represents who you are. There's a reason they have facial recognition because each one of your faces is unique and separate and different. And he says, I want to see your faces. And again, the face is tied to personal identity of those believers. And in Scripture, face is often seen as, as, a, as a sense of blessing. It's seen as something that, it, that puts together intimacy and fellowship together. Remember, God, Moses said to God, I want to see what? Show me your face. Show me your face. Right? And of course, God said, you can't see my face. If you see fully who I am, you see my full glory, it will kill you. And that is, that is throughout Scripture, that seeing someone's face brings blessing. Seeing someone's face shows that togetherness and personhood together. John writes about the same thing in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. There will no longer be any curse, as he speaks about the new heaven and the earth. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. Right? God's face represents his character and all that he is. They will see his face. And his name will be upon their foreheads. And his name will be on their what? Foreheads. On their face. And so again, we see the idea here of, of, of the face in Scripture pointing to the personal identity and presence and character of the individual. And when you think about it, even, even as we love one another, the face is important. When we go out in a crowd and we look for our loved ones, we don't look for the back of their heads. Right? We don't look just to hear their voice. 
We're looking to see their face. And we, we, we walk out and we look. And it's when we see their face that we light up. It's when their face that we, we feel that rush inside of us as we see the ones that we love. And it's not enough to get a phone call. It's not enough to Skype. When you are separated from your wife, trust me, you'd much rather see her face than Skype. And there is that joy of fellowship. And so Paul says, I want to see your face. I miss it. I want to be with you. It's not enough to make a phone call. It's not enough to make a Zoom call. It's not enough to make a video. It's not enough to hear someone's voice. We are meant to meet together in person. And Paul says, for the church, this is where we need to be. We need to be like a baby crying, like an orphan child who has lost their parents when we are separated from the church. It's not enough. It's simply not enough to sit on your couch at home in your pajamas and to watch the pastor walk around and strut and talk for 50 minutes. That is not what the body is. And a true believer should be one who, when he doesn't get fellowship with his fellow believer, gets really grumpy. Right? You should be like, you should be mourning like an orphan. So Paul says, I want to see your face. Then secondly, we should look. Not only, not only are we to, should we desire personal presence, but we should seek it. Paul says, I can't stand this prolonged separation. We've been, we've been gone for an hour, and really, if we look in time, Paul has probably been gone for six months at this point. Paul says, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and Satan hindered us. Again, the verb wanting is more than the idea of wishing. It includes the idea of active decision. I want it, and I make an active decision to do it. I'm going to go after it. And it says they were prevented or hindered from coming. That is, they were, that, and we would say from coming is the same idea as seeing their faces. They were coming, why? To see their faces. To see their faces. Yet Satan hindered us. He says more than once. More than once. We could, tri- we could really literally say once and twice. Once and twice we tried. And the idea here is not just that it was two occasions that Paul came. It wasn't like he tried twice. Oh, well, it didn't happen. The idea is it's an idiom that, that includes multiple times. Beyond counting is the idea. We tried over and over to come to you. This wasn't Paul like making the old, you know, you know, I'll phone, I'll let it ring six times, and if they don't answer, I'll hang up and I'll say I did it. This is Paul's making every effort to go. Multiple times we tried to come to you. 
It was a regular occurrence, and it was regular to that, and it showed our longing to be with you. We were so regular to try to come to see you. Now notice what he says. Satan hindered us from coming. Satan hindered us from coming. Now he names, he names him here. He uses the personal name of Satan here. The arch enemy of God. The one who is against God, the enemy of God, and against all those who belong to him. Now we know there are other names for Satan that are used in Scripture. He's called the tempter. He tries to get you to sin. We know he's called the devil. We know he's been called the serpent. But Paul is very deliberate in his use of words here. And he uses this name for a particular reason. He wants because it fits his emphasis here. Because Satan is the adversary, the enemy. He's the enemy of God's people who stands in the way of God's work. And he says, he's the one who hinders us from coming to you. He's the one who prevented us from getting there. Now this word hindering here is is a military term. And it's a term that is used by those who in the army would go and they would tear up the road to keep and, and rip it up so that the ar- advancing army couldn't come across it. They made it difficult for them to come. And he says, this is what Satan was doing for us. He was tearing up the road so that we were unable to come to you. He made it impossible for us to come to you. Now we know this, that Satan is, is under God's sovereign control. And so as Paul says this, Paul, under the Holy Spirit, says this. We know that it is, first of all, true and right. But we also know that Paul is looking from the perspective of humanity as he sees the opposition that's to him. Now, we're not exactly sure how Satan prevented him from coming. But we, we do know this, that the Jewish people continue to stir up the people in, in Thessalonica. They continue to create hostility and persecute the church. And Paul at least would have recognized that God does not approve of that behavior and of these Jews who continue to be hostile to the gospel. And so at least Paul could say, that's certainly not what God would desire. It may be what God permitted, but God certainly never would applaud people's efforts to be hostile to the, gov- to the gospel. But this is what, this, this hindering kept Paul from seeing their faces, from being with them in the personal presence of the individuals. Spurgeon said this, I think this is really good. Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything that can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. And since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. Pretty powerful. Powerful. 
Satan wants to prevent Christian fellowship. He wants to keep the church from coming together. And he will do whatever it takes to divide them, whether that's being divisive when we're together or when it means specifically here, not being able to meet face to face. And we must never underestimate Satan's schemes. We sometimes forget that we are in a spiritual battle and we are battling against principalities and powers. And there's a tendency in this day and age to downplay Satan's role. Now, we don't want to give him too much credit. We don't want to go off the other deep end where we start seeing demons everywhere and we start trying to cast them out. But we also must not forget that we are in a spiritual war. And we must recognize that he opposes the meeting together, us together. And so even Satan himself, don't estimate his influence in your own life, because Sunday morning, does not everything go wrong? Aren't those beautiful children that were perfect all week somehow changing to children you've never seen before? Don't you find that all of a sudden you seem stressed when you're just going to go fellowship? Don't underestimate his work in your life. And in this day and age, don't underestimate Satan's scheme to keep the church apart. We live in a day and age and we've gone through a time here where somehow we think that being kept apart as a church really is just a global problem. It's just a a global problem. There's no agenda against the church. Nothing is taking place here. It's It's all altruistic and it's good for humanity and therefore we should get involved and we should just go along. But Satan is just as happy to keep the church apart. And he doesn't care if he has to keep all the sporting events down and keeps you from going to the bar or keeps you from getting together with family or whatever that is. Ultimately, we know that his scheme is to what? No matter how it comes about, it is inspired by Satan to keep the church apart. And if he can separate the church, if he can keep believers from gathering as the body, he's just happy to do it. And he's happy for you to say, oh, no, everything's good. It's not Satan. After all, he didn't make a direct attack. He didn't didn't send a letter saying he was coming after us. You don't need that. All you need to know that is he is happy to keep you separated from the personal presence together with one another and that he will use whatever means he has, including a pandemic. So Paul says, we should desire to be together we should actually make an effort to be together. And then he says, thirdly, we should see an eternal perspective on personal presence, an eternal perspective. He says this, and he, he says, for our, 
For who is our hope, our joy, our crown, our exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. And Paul now goes to his motive. He goes to his motive for gathering together. In other words, why, Paul, why do you think this way? Why, why are you so much about getting together? Why are you so much about seeing faces? Aren't you just getting a little emotional? Aren't you just a little needy? I mean, if you were to put this to the world, you would think they would think that he was a bit, you know, mentally unstable. Because get yourself together. Man up. It's just a little separation. Turn on your phone, Paul. Right? But why does he think this way? What is the reason for profound, such profound affection? Well, he answers that in verses 19 and 20. He says, for you are our glory and our joy. Now, in the original, I believe this is, there's only two sentences here, not three like our translation. It's a, a rhetorical sentence, one rhetorical sentence that reads something like this. For who is our joy or crown of exaltation in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not even you? So there is this rhetorical question that Paul asks. And we know that rhetorical questions are supposed to be an obvious answer. You shouldn't need to answer them. You shouldn't need to respond to them. But Paul, remembers excited here. Paul's a bit emotional and he just has to answer it for himself. And he says in verse 20, you are, you are our glory and our joy. So he, he, he just says, well, just, I don't want you to miss this. I'm excited. And he, and he says, you are our joy and glory. And so again, Paul, with his most affectionate terms in his writings, and he explains the logic why he wanted to gather in the presence face-to-face with the Thessalonians. He first describes them as our hope. Now, hope normally is, is put towards Christ, right? That, that's normally the object of hope. In fact, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 3, He says, constantly bearing, Paul gives thanks to God for them and says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope, what? In our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is normally pointing towards Christ. But Paul here says, actually, you are our hope. You are our hope. Now that's pretty high language. That's that's pretty strong. He says, you are our hope. And then secondly, he calls them our joy. And again, what is joy? We could say it's, it's, it's experience of gladness. And in, in this particular, uh, it's a, it, in particular, it's an important theological word in Paul's writings. It refers to the spiritually produced response of a Christian, especially in the light of afflictions and obstacles. In other words, it is, it is a supernatural joy that is given that, that, that is there in spite of the afflictions and obstacles because it's given to God because there's an inward peace and joy. 
We find that even back in verse 1-6. Remember when the Thessalonians received the gospel, when they were first hearing the gospel and receiving it, he says, having received the word with much tribulation, with what? The joy of the Holy Spirit. It is produced by the Holy Spirit, not from their flesh, but from the Holy Spirit. Now Paul says, actually, you're not just our hope, you're our joy. And then thirdly, he calls them their crown. You are our crown, a term used for crown here that is used for a crown in, that is familiar to the Greek games. We could say the Olympic games. And it was a crown that an athlete would win after he won a match. And he would go before the judge of the games and the judge would, would give him a crown of victory, a wreath around his head and he would put it on there. And the, and the, and the judge would sit up on stage on a, with, he would sit up on a stage and he would judge the games. And he says, Paul says, you're, you're the laurel wreath around our heads. He calls them the crown of exaltation. The idea is, is with the word exaltation, is the idea of acting in pride. It's something to take pride in, the act of taking pride. And he says, we, we take pride in you, we exalt in you. And he says, this is done in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. Now again, we come to this term here. It's used in reference to Christ of coming together. You see, Paul so longed with the Thessalonians to be with the Thessalonians that he now shifts and he talks about the coming of Christ and he talks about the presence of Christ, Christ coming to be with them. And he refers, referring to a future time when the Lord would come. He uses this term four times in this letter. It's a reference to when the Lord comes to be with the church. And so you have this interesting thing here. He, he just mentioned in the previous verse that the Jews would come to recognize the wrath over their hostility to the gospel. But now Paul says, when Jesus comes to present, to be present with us, you will be our hope and our joy and our crown of exaltation. And you can hear the language of the Bema seat. The Bema seat is an important concept in, in the Roman athletics because the Bema seat was where the judge would sit up on the stage to judge. Paul speaks of this in various places in scripture, but it's not a place of judgment for the believer in the fact in a negative way. Instead, it refers to the place where we stand before Christ, a place where there will be crowns and rewards given to the people of Christ. And so he says, this, this is what we're looking forward to, to have reward when Christ comes. He will give us a crown, and this crown is you. You, this crown is you. He says it in the middle of verse 20 and in the middle of verse 19 as well. And he has to answer his own question. He says, is it not even you? For you are our joy and our glory. And again, he changes the word crown to glory. You are our pride and joy. And this is how Paul looked at the Thessalonians. He looked them at as their crown and joy. He looked forward to that time where he stood before Christ and they would be presented to him. 
and he would have the joy of seeing what God had done in their lives as they stood before God. And he said, that's what I rejoice in. What God has done in their life, the fact that he has saved them and changed them, and now they stand before God in faithfulness and reward. So this is how Paul looked on them. And so, when we look at people, how do we see them? Do we look on them like Paul? Do we look, at, look on people as something to, be, to invest our lives in and to minister to them? That we take all the giftedness that God has given to us and all the blessings he's given to us and to use them for the benefit of others. Is that, is that how we see people? To serve them? Paul says, if you do that right, if you do that right, with the right spirit and begin to live for them, then you des- your desire totally transform what is a naturally selfish bent, as one writer says, in you as you begin to live for others. writer says that the desire totally transforms what is naturally a selfish bent in you as you begin to live for others. And then there's something that happens because those people that you are serving instead of being a burden, they become your joy, they become your glory, they become your crown of exaltation. As you see them grow in Christ and they become your hope. And you look forward to that time as you will see them as your crown, as your wreath, as you stand before God when he comes. Kind of changes your idea about coming together, right? The church isn't some gas station to get your spiritual fill up and to go. It's a place to come and to serve and to pour your life into other people. When you all of a sudden start to see people as those who will ultimately be your crown before God, all of a sudden now you want to be here. You're not here just to hear a sermon or sing a song. But as the word works on you, you start to what? Build our lives together. And when you recognize that you are pouring your life into others who will stand before God and you will, they will be your crown because you have been faithful. All of a sudden, you need to be here. You can't keep us apart because we've got to be together. Being together means, means what? That we can live for one another, serve one another, and that we will be rewarded as we stand before God. We will have his approval. Is that not what we long for? And Paul says, don't just think about the idea that we got to get together. And don't just think that just being together is enough. He says, we need to pour our lives into one another so that when we stand before God, we can hold people up as our crown and our glory and our joy. 
And when we see people that way, we just simply can't help but want to be together because they're our joy, they're our hope, they're our crown of exaltation. Right? You see somebody with a fancy car that he keeps in his garage, right? He doesn't drive it much, but he keeps going out there. Why? Because it's his joy. It's his pride. He goes out there, takes the canvas off of it, looks at it, right? Puts it back on. Why does he keep going out there? Is, there, is the car doing anything? No, it's just his joy. And we too, when we see each other, as Paul sees the Thessalonians, will see each other as our joy. We just can't wait. We just got to go take a look. We just got to be together. So, as we close, we must recognize the necessity of putting personal presence as a priority. Right? The longing to be together isn't some weakness, it's not some vice. It's not something wrong with you. It's actually a virtue and it is something that marks the believer. It marks the believer. We talked about this earlier, but don't underestimate Satan's influence on your own life to undermine fellowship. Right? The body's supposed to get together. All of, all of the pieces of the body are supposed to be here. And every morning that you choose because it's inconvenient or something comes up and you're a little bit tired and you're not here, the body suffers. Don't let Satan influence your life so that you don't come together. Our faces matter. When we see one another, that's our personal identity. That's how love is attached to faces. And then just lastly, remember, don't just have a present tense idea of church today, but a future tense of the time where we will stand before God, all of us together. If we think that way and look forward to his coming, we will express our love to one another in a greater way until that time that we see him. Let's look forward to that time where we are presented before our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And again, we thank you for the truths that are held here. And I pray this morning that we would, we would bow down to what your word says. And that we would be those who desire to be together, who, who can't stand not to fellowship. That we would be those who would make an effort to be here and to fellowship. And that we would be, see one another as our crown, our joy, and our hope. And that we would look forward to that time where we see you. Again, I pray that you will use your word as you see fit in our hearts this morning. In your name, amen.